hey, it's Dave, and you know I'm not a fan of pre-rolls, so the fact that I'm doing one, you know this is important, and it's time-sensitive, because March 21st at 5.30 Eastern, myself and my favorite book guru, Thomas Umstadt Jr., are doing a webinar on book launch secrets. And if you go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash book launch, you'll learn more about it. But I just wanted to get this in here because that's right around the corner. Again, schoolofpodcasting.com slash book launch. Recently, the tilt.com put out a study of 1400 content entrepreneurs and the number one way they were monetizing is through online courses and workshops. And today I'm talking with Melissa Guller, who has many talents, but has a huge knowledge of online courses and workshops. Welcome to Profit From Your Podcast, proven strategies to turn listeners into a livelihood. Here's your host, Dave Jackson. If you are thinking of launching a course, you are going to love this interview. It's long and it's in-depth. I mean, everything you wanted to ask about starting a course is in this discussion. One quick piece of kind of housekeeping, and that is if you would now like an autographed copy of Profit From Your Podcast, that is now available out at ProfitFromYourPodcast.com. That's also where you're going to find the show notes for today's episode. Just go out to ProfitFromYourPodcast.com slash 24, and you'll have all the links that we talk about today with Melissa. So why was I so excited to have Melissa on the show? Well, number one, she is drinking her own Kool-Aid. She has her own courses out at witandwire.com. She has courses on podcasting, on how to get booked, on essential podcast editing. But the other thing I really wanted to tap into is she worked at Teachable, which is a platform I'm currently moving the School of Podcasting to, and she got to work with all sorts of content creators that were making courses. So not only does she have courses herself, but she worked for a company and got to support and see. I mean, you get a wide view. I work for Libsyn, and that's a podcast media hosting company, and I got that job because of my podcast. And you get to see a very wide view of, in my case, the podcasting space, and in Melissa's case, the whole course content creation space. So check out our website, witandwire.com. Here's my conversation with Melissa. Well, Melissa, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk courses because I mentioned in a previous episode that that right now is one of the most profitable ways to make money with your podcast. And so how does somebody know if a course is a good fit for their podcast? I think the better question is what time could be the right fit for you to consider a course? Because anybody who's already sharing their knowledge in a podcast, I would say odds are good if you're using that podcast to build up authority, build up your brand, build up who you are and what you want to share. You're already building up credibility around some kind of knowledge And I don't think you need nearly as much experience as a podcaster or frankly, any internet content creator to create a course. I think that's a big misconception. You do not have to be the number one expert in your whole industry in order to create the course. But where I do think maybe people start too soon is that they go right into a full course. They start creating videos, they start uploading, 
And what I would say instead is it's better to find a way to get paid to develop that course instead. So I think one of the biggest steps that people skip is the validation that your idea is something that people would pay for. And there are a couple ways that you can validate the idea. The first is to do one-on-one coaching or services. Can you just get one person to pay you money? I think that's a great place to start because then you'll get paid not only to develop obvious relationships with early clients, but also to figure out how you do the thing you claim to want to teach. Like if you want to teach somebody how to build up their resume, but you've never actually done that before, having one person pay you is a great way to figure out what your system is. And then as you help a couple of individuals, then you'll start to see, you know what? I do the same thing in the same order for everyone. And that's a good indicator that you could have a course idea on your hands. But even if you do just want to jump right into more of a true course format, I think one of two things works really well. One is a paid workshop. See if you can get people to sign up for one one to two hour event, because that way, if nobody buys, then you haven't wasted all of your time creating this three month long full on program. And instead you can get, like I said, validated. You can get paid to do that first workshop. And then if it works, you can develop it from there. Or the second thing you can do is run what people call a beta program, or they do something they call them founding members. You often only need five-ish people, maybe five to 10 people to get a solid group of people who all want to achieve the same outcome. And then you can do something as low-tech as meeting over Zoom every Monday for eight weeks. You can develop the content as you go. And what's nice about that approach is, first of all, founding members get the best possible price. They get more access to you. So they're getting a really personalized experience and you're getting the invaluable insight of what they really need to solve. Because that's what your course does at the end of the day. It's the shortcut to an outcome. And so if they're paying you and they're telling you exactly what they need along the way, your end curriculum, which you can then sell as a course, will be much better off. Yeah, I've seen people try Kickstarter. And I I get that. I kind of like your idea better because you're getting that. Number one, you have to convince somebody to give you money, which is kind of what you're doing with Kickstarter. But this way, you're instantly getting that relationship started to figure out what do these people really need? Is there such a thing as a too long course or too short? Is there any kind of best practices for that? A great question. One we got all the time when I was working full-time for Teachable. I usually talk about the size of the transformation that somebody will achieve rather than the length of the course. Because at the end of this entire course experience, people don't really want to sit around for hours and hours and hours and watch videos. And I think what a lot of new course creators get wrong is you see the sales page and they're so excited to tell you that it's like 72 hours of videos. And that's the absolute last thing I want. So I actually think as course creators, one of the things that the great course creators do is they're always asking, how can I make this curriculum shorter? What could I edit out? What is not need to know in order to get somebody from point A to point B? But then to answer your question more directly, let's say that our example from earlier, somebody is just creating a stronger resume to maybe change industries. Well, the outcome of that, I would say, is pretty significant in terms of, you know, resumes affect your earning potential. It matters. But if you're also going to do something that's a little more extensive around maybe job hunting, interviewing, then you could start to get into more of a signature program. But overall, one person could still go from the beginning to the end of that course, and there would be a transformation that makes sense. I think where it starts to feel overwhelming is where you try to do everything within one course. So of course, here we are talking to podcasters. I think it would feel pretty overwhelming 
to enroll in a course where the goal was to go from podcast idea to 100,000 downloads. Like, of course, that's the dream, right? We all want to have wildly successful podcasts, but the major milestone we've missed along the way is maybe launching the podcast, maybe your first 20 episodes of the podcast. And critically, I think the strategies, I'm sure you would agree, the first 20 episodes, getting your podcast out there, the questions you're asking are so different from the questions that somebody at 50,000 downloads is asking. And so to me, those are two very different students. So I would say, think about a transformation that matters, but especially if it's your first course, don't go for the entire thing. Pick something that's meaningful, but doable. Does that help in the students aspect as well? Because I have that problem right now. And I was just going to have one course and then break it into, I think you call them sections and teachable, but you ended up with this really long page. And I was like, maybe I should have a, like you said, like a launching and have a growing course, but yet they would all be under one umbrella of the school of podcasting. Is is there a pros and cons of either one? I'm sure people could argue either way, but to me, if I look at a big course, it's going to feel a little bit daunting. And I think a lot of people build their confidence by small wins along the way. So that's why I think a course that feels like the outcome is attainable, maybe something that's in one month, maybe two or three months. To me, that's a timeline I can wrap my head around. But if you tell me it's going to take me 12 months to do something, or if I look at an outline and I have to scroll for literal pages and pages and pages, it starts to feel very intimidating. So I think that's another reason why you might want to consider launching as one, growing as another, because that way, me, the new podcaster, I can think to myself, I can launch this podcast. I think that feels doable to me. What are some of the, I'll just call them eye-rolling mistakes. And by that, I just mean that the newbies, for lack of a better phrase, those mistakes that they make that you see over and over that you go, oh, yeah, well, God bless them. They're new. Let's let's (laughs) get them going in the right doorway. So what are those kind of mistakes that you see? Let me first say that teaching is a skill. I think it's really hard to learn how to teach what you know well, especially because to answer your question directly, we have forgotten what it's like to be a beginner. And I think too often we skip over the earliest questions people are asking because we unknowingly assume that they're common knowledge. Like for example, you and I get asked about microphones all the time. We could talk about podcast microphones, naming a podcast, all of these early questions in our sleep. We can answer them day in and day out, but you still have to break those down as though no one's ever asked you before. And you have to really put yourself in the headspace of a beginner. And I think another thing that course creators maybe undervalue is the fact that being a beginner is really hard. And so by that, I mean, when you're starting off a new course, your enthusiasm is at like a level 10, but your skills are at maybe a one or a two. And so if you get right into maybe the thing that you think is most exciting, that you think most people want to learn... If they aren't ready for it yet, if they haven't done the warm up before they run the race, they're going to feel ill prepared and they're more likely to give up. So I think something I wish that more course creators did is think about those small wins right at the beginning and even help people think much bigger picture. So why are they starting their new project? What are the goals of the project? Again, these things might sound really basic, but I don't see them addressed enough. And even just taking a little time at the beginning to set up those foundational questions will help people navigate through the full course. From my teaching days, 
I would spend the first five minutes setting up a class and I would explain that we are going to take breaks. We are going to go to lunch. The bathroom's on the left. Uh, here's all the topics we're going to cover. And by doing that, you make the student feel like, okay, I'm in the right place. My boss isn't going to kill me and things like that. And then we could get onto the, the content. What does that look like in the digital space? I actually do exactly that. I don't tell people how to find their own bathroom, but I literally do a video where I tell people, big picture, the goal of this program is to launch a podcast. And then I say, here are the big picture phases you're going to see in this course, basically like syllabus week. And then I actually do a little bit of a tour, optional, a second video using the program. I tell people how to click around. I tell people how to contact me. In my case, I have a private student community. I tell people all of this as though they have never seen a course in my platform before. Because if people know how to use Teachable or I use Circle for my community, if people know how to use those tools, they will self-select themselves out of watching this video. But if you don't provide the video, then you're missing the opportunity to educate the students who need it the most. I love teaching because that's my background, but I know there are probably a ton of people out there that have the knowledge. They might even have the audience. What's stopping them from, from starting? I know for me, video put a big damper on me because right now I'm about a lot more than I should be overweight, but yet I'm redoing my videos because I was like, look, if I wait till I lose the weight, it'll be 2027 by the time I start doing my videos. So is that one of the biggest things that, that people trip over is the video part? Yeah. Throughout all four years, I was at Teachable. By far, the number one challenge that we heard from new course creators was, I don't know how to create video. I'm afraid of putting myself out there and being on video. And especially right now, the technology to create using even a webcam or your iPhone has never been better. But I think bigger picture, there's almost this like procrastinating fear of, oh, if I make the video, then I have to put the video out there. And then I have to enroll people. And then I have to have this fear of people telling me my curriculum isn't good. But people really don't need a fancy camera. They don't need a fancy mic even, although obviously I love great audio quality. (laughs) What they need is your knowledge. And I like to compare this to a classroom. We've all attended in-person classes and the person at the front of the room didn't look a certain way. They didn't have fancy gear around them. They may have even had a chalkboard or a whiteboard in the background. And you walked away from that class feeling like you gained something. And that's what's the most important thing to remember about your online course is that people are buying this course because they appreciate the knowledge that you have. They probably want the outcome that you've achieved. And I think if you can keep it really simple, you can download things like free Google Slides templates. You can screen demo on your computer. I do believe in showing your face in some of the curriculum, especially something like a welcome video or something at the top. But you don't have to be on camera for the whole thing. I think that's a misconception. Another misconception is that video is the only element to your course when there are so many other pieces we can talk about. But if video is the one thing holding you back, I would say really all you need is a webcam or some Google slides and a very simple recording tool on your computer. And I'll even double down and say, I don't think you need to edit. I think if you go into your recording of a specific lesson and you think to yourself, all right, we're going to do 10 minutes on a specific topic on choosing a podcast format, let's say. You can go into it and teach the way that you would in a classroom. And that'll help you feel like, oh gosh, I don't have to do all this editing. And I think as podcast hosts, it's maybe a little trickier for us because we are used to doing editing. But that's how you can cut down on the time it'll take you 
to produce the content as well, which I think is huge. And one more thing I'll say about video is that people do not want to watch hour long videos. Mm. People want to retain knowledge. And I think they, similar to a theme we talked about earlier, they want to feel like this course is attainable. And I think a lot of people have seven minutes. A lot of people have 15 minutes to learn about a specific lesson. And so for the student, I think it's a lot easier to digest a lot of short lessons. But I also think it's nicer if you imagine the way that your course outline looks. Let's say you have one specific section of the course. A lot of people would record that as just an hour-long video. But instead, if you break that into an outline where there's one specific outcome per lesson, it's so much easier for your student to go back later and reference that one specific thing they were looking for, which helps them actually get to your outcome over time. And then as an instructor, I think maybe an unspoken or less spoken about benefit of mapping out your course into these smaller videos is let's say one thing changes. If you have an hour long video and now you have to go in and change minute 37 to 39, that's going to feel really frustrating. But if you've recorded a series of four to six videos, now you can just replace one of those videos with a newer five minute video later on and keep the rest. So for maintenance, for student experience, for sheer ease of recording and production, I think across the board, shorter videos are the way to go. Yeah, I have lived that. The whole like, hey, let's do 45 minutes on this thing. And like you said, minute 38 goes bad. I think the other thing that that happens from the student standpoint is you have this person that's nervous about learning this new topic. They make it through the onboarding. They go to that first you know, lesson. And when it's only three minutes long and they go, oh, I didn't know I could do that. And then they go to the second one. You you kind of start to kill that imposter syndrome that, that oh, I'm never going to be able to learn this stuff. Technology or whatever the topic is that they're learning is like, oh, that's not for me. All of a sudden they go, hey, maybe maybe I can actually do that. So I think that's another benefit of the short lesson and the maintenance because it just I, I started to have ticks and, and flashbacks, as you mentioned. That. <laughs> I remember that. Let's say I've done a podcast and it's got a great episode and I've got this content and it fits in with my course. Is it okay to take something that's free and put it in a course that's not free? Definitely. I think there's actually two great questions here. One is almost what is the difference between what should be in your free content versus your paid content? Mm. A question we got a lot. And the other is about just generally what kinds of content can you include in a course? So let's start with that one because we've already hinted at it. Video, of course, is the backbone of what we all think of when we think of an online course. But things like PDFs, I think, are valuable, but that's just a format. Things like community, I think, can be helpful for the right program if people need support or even if people would benefit from connecting to each other. If you imagine all your students, chances are good that they have a lot in common, that they could benefit from knowing each other. So some element of community or even a directory of students could be really valuable. Also, things like live weekly group coaching. I know there are coaching elements in school podcasting. Just having the chance for people to get that one-on-one time, I think is really helpful. But then I think the understated elements of courses that I would love to see more people are including are things like templates, script starters, checklists. Yes, technically these are all PDFs or things that I in 2021 like to deliver as Google Docs, something I actually use in my day-to-day life. But things that, again, help people shortcut to that outcome So it's not about just thinking PDF equals course workbook. It's thinking about things like maybe Trello or Asana boards or Google Sheets or working docs or starter scripts. Even I've seen some people include things like 
coding snippets, examples, things that people can literally copy and paste? Do you have an Elementor landing page that you can share within your course? What are all the things that you are going to have to teach? And then ask yourself, could I actually create a starting version or a demo of any of these that would help somebody just start off on the right foot instead of using a blank page? And one more, I would say, uh, pro tip that I use in my programs is that I create suggested timelines of how long it would take somebody to create the course. I don't assume they'll all take the same pace. So in my program about launching a podcast, I help people decide, do you want to launch in 30, 60, or 90 days? These are very different paces. And you can't maybe quite do as much in 30 days as you could in 90 days in terms of banking up more episodes before you go live, things like that. So I like to show people the difference because I have a background in project management, course creation. No matter the project, if you're new at something, we all underestimate how long it would take. (laughs) And I think by just showing people, I make like simple PDFs, just kind of showing week one, you would do this, week two, you would do that. You don't have to get into the super specific details of this lesson on this day, this lesson on that day. I think that's a recipe for chaos. But just big picture, what does it look like to go through your program? And then I, the productivity nerd, go one step further I do have templates in Trello and Asana and Airtable and Notion and Google Sheets and even printouts because I'm trying to suit all my student styles. I would say that's that's overachieving. That's like my zone of genius. I love to organize stuff. But just something that could help your students take the course because if left to their own devices, unfortunately, most students don't finish a lot of the programs they enroll in, even with the best intentions. So I think it's up to you as the course creator to figure out not just what knowledge they need, but also how to help them get it on their calendar in order to move through the program. The other thing, I, this is my own uh, selfish question, because this is for me, I'm, I'm pondering this in the future. Like right now, the School of Podcasting is open. If you want to start right now, you can. Some people do the whole, okay, we're, we're open in January, and then we're going to close for six weeks while we teach the people that signed up. And then that, you know, that whole open close, you have the big launch, and then the whole nine yards. Pros and cons, It's a tricky question. And I have seen both strategies work really well. When I was working for Ramit Sethi, we did a lot of what's called the open close launch strategy. In other words, the course is only available for a set amount of time. And then it well and truly closes. You cannot enroll the following week. And I think for people doing the open close strategy, the benefits are that it's real urgency and real scarcity. And deadlines absolutely do drive decision-making. And so... People often need a reason to buy and closing a program definitely gives people that reason to buy. Now, what I think a bigger upside of the open close philosophy is, is that if you open your program a few times a year, you can create internal cohorts or groups of students who are going through it together. And I think depending on how you've built it, if you have a community element, there's a real camaraderie to that. They get to know each other. People are joining at the same time. You can do an onboarding or a kickoff call. And a lot of students in my programs and some of the other like clients and people I've worked with, they have found that that kind of cohort effect of people going through a course at the same time builds accountability within the group. And it leads to higher outcomes by the end of the program because they don't feel like they're alone. It mimics more of a classroom setting. Now on the cons, the open-close launch strategy is, in a word, exhausting. I think it takes a lot of energy to do it. And even if you think to yourself, oh, we're going to do this a few times a year, we're going to rinse and repeat, we're going to use 80% of what we've done in the past. I am here to tell you, it's more work than you think it is. Mm. And I'm only saying that because I've done it. I've been in those shoes. I'm the person who's done this for years for myself and for other people. And still when the end of the live launch rolls around, 
I'm just like, why do we do this to ourselves? But I do think that the pros, obviously earning more money, getting the students in the door, having real deadlines and real urgency, those are all very real pros. And I do think it's a good choice, especially earlier, we talked about a beta program. I would definitely close the doors on a beta program. I would maybe even do another round after that where you close the doors, maybe the first time that you enroll people into the full actual self-paced curriculum, because that's not just about urgency. It's also to me about improving your curriculum and improving your overall experience. So I think that early course creators benefit in particular from the live launch strategy. Then the evergreen model is where you have your course open all the time. And for transparency right now, Wit & Wire, I'm on the evergreen model because I was just kind of exhausted with (laughs) launching. (laughs) And I think that some pros of the evergreen model are number one, people are not necessarily ready to buy when they first learn about you. And so if you only open the doors a couple times a year and somebody happens to find you the next week, maybe they've potentially missed the boat, even though they're so hot, they're so ready to buy. That's one extreme. Then on the other end, maybe somebody finds you and they're really just learning. They're in the early phases. They haven't decided they want your outcome yet. So it's not the right timing for them. So I think that's a con. But then when it comes to marketing strategies, I use a lot of, of course, organic and paid traffic for my business. And so I decided I really wanted to run Facebook ads and be able to A-B test those strategies. And so I run ads to a free masterclass. And then that masterclass promotes the program, which is always open. There is an offer that people can get if they're a first-time attendee of the masterclass. So I do build in some kind of gratitude for people who are action takers who want to join and give them a bonus course. But they know the program's available. Like I don't believe in pretending your program closes if it doesn't. That doesn't feel good to me. So things like running paid strategies and optimizing them over time, that's a pro, I think, for Evergreen. I also think for any podcasters who are going on to other shows being a guest, if you want to talk about your business and build up authority, but your program only opens a few times per year, that could limit the potential for new people who find out about you to join your membership to join your program, your curriculum. So I think that having that open close strategy, although you get like a huge intake of money a few times a year, the question you'll have to ask yourself is, do you believe that those few times added up will be more than the money that you could earn by keeping your program all year long? And it will be very different for different people. And like I said, within my evergreen funnel for first time watchers of my masterclass, I do a little something. And then a couple of times a year, I might still do something special to promote the program, but it's less of a big to-do than it might be if I wasn't on a totally evergreen model. I think evergreen models work really well for topics that people are always interested in. So things like podcasting, right? People are always developing different skills, hobbies, crafts, really anything in the professional arena. I think I would argue that most topics people are looking for year-round. The alternative is maybe some topics are a little more suited for like a back to school season or a new year's season. And I think you would know if that was true about your industry. Fitness comes to mind for January, where I feel like if I were in the fitness industry, I would probably do something around January. But I think for most people, working toward an evergreen model tends to suit at least my stress level a little bit better. Since you have a teachable background, is there a feature in teachable that like you go, oh, this is like the coolest feature and nobody's using it? 
Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I will say you can embed podcast episodes inside of lessons. And I do think that is an underutilized feature. And just generally embedding is the thing that I do that I think not enough creators are doing. So I'll give an example. I do an onboarding form in all of my signature programs, my programs that are like more than 50 bucks, because I really want to get to know students. And so I embed, I happen to use, I mean, I've used all the different from type form to paper form. I've used all the forms, Google forms, and I like to embed them within the lesson itself Mm. instead of clicking out to it. Because if people can see it in front of them and just get started, I think it just makes it overall a much nicer experience. So I think people underestimate how much you can do within a lecture that is not just adding a video. Coming up, we're going to hear Melissa talk about how much do I charge for my course? But first, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Tim Beat. He actually bought the book Profit From Your Podcast, available at ProfitFromYourPodcast.com and left a five-star review at Amazon. He says, Dave Jackson has been an innovator in podcasting for more than 15 years, and this book is packed with practical advice from what he's learned along the way. The realistic revenue projections are excellent. If you're just starting a podcast or trying to bring your existing podcast to the next level, this book is a must read. So I just want to say thanks to Tim. And of course, you can get that book at Amazon, but you can also now get an autographed copy out at ProfitFromYourPodcast.com. Now back to Melissa. The last thing we haven't talked about, of course, is price. I know for me, anytime I price my stuff, it's always too low. I need to bring it up. Any tips on setting a price for your course? Tons of tips. As I'm sure you could guess, this is another one of the hot topics for course creators. And let me say that I think pricing is hard because you can't know the right answer. Mm. You also can't necessarily look around at your direct competitors and know what the price should be for you. I think it's healthy when you're first pricing something to see what else is out there because you don't want to be way under or way over. But my general advice, and then I'll give specific numbers as well, is to start lower than you think because it's a lot easier to raise your price Hmm. over time. Like starting with that beta group, pick the lowest price you feel comfortable doing because that's your first group. You're going to get input. Then when you release it the next time, it goes up a little bit. And then in the future, when you do raise the price, you can create sincere, authentic deadlines based on raising the price. And that way, people who paid it earlier feel like they got in at a good time. They have that loyalty of being a founding or an early student. But then people later on, yeah, they're going to pay you a little bit more because your expertise has gone up and you have testimonials. You've got the proof. So start lower. But now, obviously, you want to know, okay, Melissa, what should I actually price this thing? (laughs) That's that's a great point because it's much easier to go up. I I mean, when mm -hmm. I first launched, it was ridiculously low. And I actually found that the more I raised my price, and, and this sounds weird, I'm going to put up air quotes here, the better student I got. Because if it was too low, people would sign up and then not do a thing. They would just like, here's, you know, 15 bucks a month. And I was like, okay, but like, how, anything I can help with the podcast and just, they would just ghost me. And I'm like, okay, you're paying me $15 a month for nothing, apparently. You get a, and again, better is maybe not the right word, but a more engaged, more serious a student. And in my world, that's my marketing arm is the, the finished students. So do you have some specific numbers, obviously, that you've probably seen? So go ahead and share those. I do. But I think that's such an important point because 
the phrase we'd often use is like skin in the game. Like if people only put $5 in, they're only going to put a $5 level of effort into that purchase. And yeah, it may seem like, oh, but it's so affordable. Many more people could buy it. You are going to deal with way more customer service issues, unhappy people, people who don't try. The more they invest in the course, it's really a decision to invest in themselves and in their decision to reach the outcome. There's also the perceived value before we go into dollars. Because if I told you I was going to teach you how to rewrite a tech resume that could land you a job in engineering, and I said, this course is $5, you would say, I don't think so. This person clearly does not have the expertise. But if I told you it was $495, now you're starting to think, why is she charging so much? And then you realize that if the promise of me helping you change careers is that you're going to earn 10K more a year, well, now paying me $500 seems like absolutely nothing. So I think that you do have to consider the optics of the price point related to, again, how big that transformation is within your course. And let's get into some specific numbers since I feel like people are just waiting. If your course to start with the workshop level is like an hour or two, like if somebody could take it within an hour or two, generally speaking, I would price that under $100. And the reason why I'm not saying, oh, it should only be 20 or oh, it should only be 50 is because the difference between a perhaps watercolor painting intro could be very different from the resume example that we've been building because the outcomes are different. Right. And also just honestly, your preference. If you feel like 45 massively undervalues what you're doing, charge more and vice versa. If you feel like 95 is so uncomfortable, you couldn't possibly fathom doing it, charge less. I wouldn't go under probably 45 for really any amount of workshop or course. Like I would encourage you to not go below that point because one hour of your time is well worth that, no matter how it's being delivered. So I would say that's the minimum. Then if you think about an outcome that might take closer to a month. So this is kind of getting up into like a middle transformation. It's probably something that's useful to somebody's life. Now you're looking at a range, I would say, that could go up to about 250. And then if you're thinking a month to three months, probably for the outcome, this is going to sound wild, but I'm going to have to say 500 to 1,000. Again, because of that size of the ultimate transformation of the program. So it's a lot harder to price based on just how many videos. I wouldn't have any of you price based on that. I think it's still tricky to price based on how long it takes to get to the outcome because it's a very different life transformation. But then the one other factor that you can use when it comes to pricing is how much access they get to you and how much access there could be to other students. So if it's a fully self-paced curriculum where there is no personal touch, there is no community, and the only support that they could get is, say, email, that price point is going to be much lower than a program that has weekly live group coaching, than a program that might have a community element. So the more of those elements that you add in, the higher the price can go. But once again, my overall advice is to price it at the lowest end that you feel comfortable doing because you can always increase it over time and it is much harder to go in the opposite direction. So even though that wasn't a specific one-size-fits-all number, do you think that that <laughs> is useful? Absolutely. Any tips on should you like make a couple lessons free of a paid course as kind of a teaser? Is that a good strategy? I think it's a great strategy. Whether you have a couple of free lessons or even just one way to showcase yourself on video or the way that you teach, what that does is it helps people understand if your teaching style is for them. 
Mm. I think as podcast hosts, a lot of people are already getting a sense of our personality and how we are, which is why I think podcasting is such a nice segue into teaching a course because you really are building a relationship with listeners who come to know you and know not just the fact that you're an expert on a topic, but the way you talk about that topic. So I think that having a few lessons for free, nice little opt-in as well. You can grab somebody's email address in exchange for a free preview of a course. I think that's a great way to build up your email list. And email lists are often a big moneymaker. It's where I make a lot of sales for my business, as I'm sure a lot of people on your show have said as well. And then I think there's this big question about what do you keep in the course versus what do you talk about publicly? Like, Are there things that you shouldn't talk about on your podcast if you know that they're going to be part of your paid curriculum? And there are different schools of thought on this. Some people say publicly and for free, you can tell people what to do, but not how to do it. I think that that works for some topics in some cases, but I think it builds trust to tell people how to do things at least a little bit. Other people say there's this 98% rule. Give away 98% of everything for free. 2% ends up gated. You end up making money in the end. That could work too. What I will say is that people buy a course because it saves them time. And so even if you've shared every single topic in that course in different ways across your podcast, your social media, out in the world, the fact is that it's not in order. So for somebody to go out and try to put everything that you've said into an order that would actually lead them to that transformation would be a huge challenge. And that's why we don't all Google things. That's why we buy courses in general. We want A to Z shortcut fastest possible time. Well, for me, I always laugh because people go, well, you know, why would somebody pay for something they can get for free? I go, well, you can watch the wizard of Oz for free on TBS. It's about five hours long when they show it on TV. Cause they cram it full of commercials. Cause they know people go, Oh my gosh, the wizard of Oz, I'll watch this. Or you can buy it for 10 bucks on Amazon as a DVD or whatever you want. And it's everything's in one place. There's no ads. It's quicker. It's you can watch it whenever you want. You don't have to wait and that whole nine yards. So yeah, I always think about that as well. The other thing that people are probably thinking is, you know what? This sounds great. I, I realize now I have this knowledge in my head, man, if I could get, I don't know, 50% of my audience to sign up. And if I charge them $45 just to start out with, well, I, you know, I, I'm going to quit my job. What are some realistic numbers when it comes to how many people are probably going to sign up from your, your podcast? I think the good news is that you can start having a course or a beta program like we talked about before a lot sooner than people realize. Even if you're getting just a handful of very dedicated listeners, even up through 100, a couple hundred, that's enough to get 5 to 20 beta people. And I think the reason I'm saying this first is because you don't need to start with 100 students. I think we all have these big dreams about our audiences converting. But starting with an intentionally small group of 5 to 10 will really teach you a lot about how to help the next 50 to 200 students. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to talk about is realistic conversion rates for the average course creator. So I've worked for Teachable, Remit, and now with Witten Wire's business. And consistently across those businesses over the last seven-ish years, there is roughly a 2% conversion rate from audience to buyer. And that might sound small, and that's because it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want people to go out and think that 50% of your audience is going to convert. And I don't think that's a bad thing because some people will be crazy loyal fans of your podcast and they may buy some things from you 
at different price points. And I think for a lot of business owners, course creators included, having things at different price points with different access to you matters. Like you could have something that's a downloadable for $10, a course for $500, and a service for $3,000. And now you're meeting different people at different budgets with different access to you. But overall, the fact that people are not buying from you is not a bad thing. Like, I don't want people to walk away from this conversion number hearing, oh God, 98% of people will never buy from me. <laughs> I don't think that's it at all. I think instead, it's just thinking about the fact that 2% of people out there need exactly what you're offering. And at first, that might be only 10 people. That's still 10 people whose lives are going to change. And then as your audience begins to grow, as more people tune into your podcast, as more students find success and then tell other people to join your program, then the 2% number will grow and it'll keep growing. And so I think it's helpful to go into it, like you said, with that realistic benchmark that for me, what I'm looking at is how many people sign up for my free masterclass to how many people ultimately buy. For me, it's 5%. It's a little bit higher. And I think that's because I have a little bit more experience in just knowing exactly who my course is for and being really clear about it. So the more clarity you have as well about not just your topic, but who you're for, who your ideal student is, which hopefully matches the ideal listener of your podcast, the higher your conversion rate could be. But I really don't want people to see this as so, so tiny, even though I think 2%. I mean, what's your reaction to hearing that number? I usually say three. When, oh, big spender. When, yeah. When I, when I did all my research and anytime I do any kind of thing, and, and I actually did one, I do a, a show on Saturday and I had 8% of my audience. So I say 8%. I'm like, holy cow, that's amazing. And then I went to my other show that has, I don't know, four times the size of that audience. And it was something really like 0. 0.02, like 0, 0.1. It was very like not even 1%. And I remember I listened to Radio Lab. Uh, which is this super popular show that's highly produced and they have gazillions of listeners and they did a pledge drive and they're like, we're trying to get up to 1%. And I mm-hmm. was like, wow. And so it's not just the little guys. It's every, it's just the thing it is. People like free stuff and the people that really, really love that subject. And like you said, when you, when you scratch the itch of the person who has a really bad itch, they'll pay anything. Just please just right there, right underneath the shoulder. You know, that's awesome. And maybe I can offer one more sure. visual if we can have a visual on a podcast about this conversion rate. Because if you imagine 100 people, let's say we are using the masterclass example, 100 people sign up. Well, already, not all of them are going to attend. The average attendance rate for a masterclass could be 20 to 30%. So you can see how quickly you've gone from 100 to 30 people who are even going to attend to hear about your offer. And so when you picture all of the touch points that somebody has with you, whether it's following your podcast, signing up for something that's free on your site, whether it's a masterclass or a downloadable, those are the top of the funnel. There's so many people who come into that top part of the net who may not ever have purchase intent or they have a lot going on. But what you want to do is just be around when that person has the problem that they need solved and be there at exactly the right moment. Maybe that helps us see like if it's 100 people, only 30 people come to this offer. Maybe it's right for half of them, but maybe for half of those people, it's not right right now. And so it goes into 50% again. So it's not about you and your ability to be a salesperson. It's just about getting the right people at the top of the net so that you can sell to them and solve their problem when it's the right time for them as well. Absolutely. 
The other thing I should ask, and it's kind of funny because I just had somebody on the last episode, uh, you're using Circle for your community. Uh, did you look at any other platforms or why did you go with Circle? So admittedly, I'm friends with Sid and Andy, the founders, because we all worked together at Teachable. But they know as well as anybody that I'm pretty discerning when it comes to online tools. And so I did try a few other platforms. I considered having a free Facebook group. I then remembered that I hated Facebook. (laughs) Um, So I nixed that idea right quick. And then I tried a few others, MemberPress. But I ended up choosing Circle because I did come from a world of Slack. And so the concept of what they call spaces or channels along the left was really appealing. But where I think Circle is different from other platforms is that it was founded by course creators, people who have been in this industry for a while. And so I think just the flexibility of the platform is really interesting. You can almost create a whole course within Circle if you know what you're doing, because you can use posts strategically. You can use some spaces as event backlogs of different live streams or recorded Zoom events that you could post. That's what I do for my archives of group coaching. You can have other spaces dedicated to discussion, other spaces where I've just embedded an Airtable directory in one of mine. So you can see all of the students in a particular course. So I think the flexibility of Circle is really interesting. And then the fact that there's an app has made it more accessible to a lot of my students. And so I know for a lot of them, the community is their favorite part of the program. And because I mentioned the fact that it's on mobile, something that podcast hosts can think about is the fact that a lot of people want to learn on the go. And so if you are creating a course, maybe in phase two, when it becomes self-paced curriculum, do you consider having a private feed of your lessons so that people can actually listen to your course on the go because they know you as a podcast host and would probably love that kind of content, that ease, that accessibility, listen on their commute while they're out driving. So I think that podcast hosts have a lot of real advantages. And Circle is certainly an interesting tool that I hope a lot more hosts will look into. Wit and Wire, that's W-I-T and Wire.com is the website. She's got all sorts of courses over there. If you want to launch your podcast with Melissa and not me, I will I will be heartbroken. But you know what? If you want to work with a female, I totally get that. She's also got courses over there on editing and how to get booked and how to, yeah, again, we talked monetization. You've got courses on that. It's all over at witandwire.com. Thank you so much for sharing your information about creating courses. And again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That is a ton of information, a lot of great advice, what to charge, keep it open or closed. I like the one tip about, you know, when you get somebody from point A to point B, the next thing is not to give them more videos to watch. It's get them from point A to point B faster. I will have links to all of Melissa's courses as well as her podcast, Wit & Wire, and of course, my book, Profit from Your Podcast. I'll have links to uh, Teachable and Circle. And Melissa is now the third person I know that is using Circle.so. And I got to say, I am now using Teachable for the School of Podcasting. It's not officially public yet. But man, when you integrate Circle and Teachable, it's like butter. I mean, it's so seamless and so cool. And I've heard so many people say things like this. I mean, there's Facebook ads. I know some people are doing that. And Facebook, that's, I'm so down on Facebook. It seems like everybody I know is more down on Facebook just because of what they show, what shows up on their scroll. 
So if you'd like to check out Circle, go to ProfitFromYourPodcast.com slash Circle, and that will take you right there. I want to thank you so much for listening. Got more episodes coming up. I know I've taken some time off, and if you're new to the show, I put out content, well, when I have it. And when it's good, like today with Melissa, you can go out to ProfitFromYourPodcast.com. You can follow the show. And the next time a new episode comes out, it will automatically come down to your device. I'm Dave Jackson from the theschoolofpodcasting.com asking you, who could use some more money? Hey, it's Dave. Thanks for sticking around here. Again, this is not the norm, but we've kind of got a time-sensitive issue here because this webinar is March 21st about book launch secrets. It's myself and Thomas Umstadt, and then he's going to talk about this course, and it's going to basically go over everything you need to know about launching your book, and you'll learn proven principles and methods to help your next book or get your first book off the ground like a rocket. Thomas, the same way that I live and breathe podcasting, Thomas lives and breathes books. And then what's beautiful about it is his kind of mentor, James L. Rubart, it's kind of like getting Han Solo and Yoda at the same time. And the reason I think this is so important is this is the last time they're teaching this course. Now, the webinar you're signing up for, absolutely free, and you're going to walk away with a lot of great ideas. And an offer, we're not going to lie to you, they're going to talk to you and ask you to take this course. But there's so much value in just the free webinar, I wanted to let you know that it's going on and it's happening very, very soon, March 21st. Look at the calendar. Yeah, that's like, holy cow, it's coming right up. All you have to do is go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash book launch. That's schoolofpodcasting.com slash book launch. I can't wait to see you there.